Welcome back to Dragon's Demise, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. I'm your co-host Greg, joined as always by Jacob. Hello. And today we'll be reviewing Betrayal at the House on the Hill and its expansion, Widow's Walk. But first, let's talk about what we've been playing. So we just finished actually two games of Armadora. Yes, we did. It was quite a lot of fun. Another small box game, two to four players with the four player option actually being a team option. So pretty standard sort of small box game from what we've seen actually. I compared it to uh, Small Star Empires yeah. and Battle Chaos, another game that, you know, very similar sort of tile laying slash strategic placement type of game. Yeah, and I've recently been very impressed by these small box games, including this one, where the way that you place everything and just there's a lot of thought behind the very simple rule set. So this one is pretty much territory control. You go about, you place palisades to create the territories, and at the same time you're also placing your warriors who have numbers of one through five as power. Whoever has the most power in the territory at the end of the game gets the gold in that territory. Simple. That, of course, leads to other things, you know, a rule that says that you can't have any territory with less than four squares. So that means that everyone's going to try to subdivide as much as possible or create territories that literally cannot be subdivided into spaces that have less than the four squares. Right. There's a lot of strategy and a lot of different layers of that strategy. So, you know, you can say, all right, I'm going to aim for something that has seven squares in a single territory so that it's indivisible. Or you can say, all right, you know what? I'm not even going to worry about laying down palisades and controlling territory. Instead, I'm just going to let other people do that and then place my warriors, you know, wherever I feel like I can get the most advantage out of that. So there's there's definitely multiple avenues to a successful game. Mm-hmm. And it's also really interesting because you on a turn, you can't both place a warrior and palisades. It's one or the other. So if you place palisades on one turn, you still have to like hide it a little bit so that people don't know what you're doing. Right. So that they don't preempt you and possibly, you know, put their warriors in the territory that you're trying to create and separate from the others. Or do it in such a way that they literally cannot prevent you from doing it. Exactly. Because you can only place two palisades a turn, which, you know, sounds like it's a, a pretty reasonable amount. But actually, it's not enough, really, to secure you any sort of space in a, the course of a single turn. So you're going to be at someone's mercy, whether they notice what you're doing or whether they decide that they want to focus on other things, that's up to them. But you're you're not going to be able to reliably blitz to control over a certain territory. Exactly. And I think that that is a lot of fun because you have to really try to balance that and have that risk of, okay, now I'm really showing exactly what I'm doing, but hopefully that person can't do anything about it or just, you know, placing it in a certain, a specific way that will not let them do anything about it. Yeah. And in general, the game is a lot of fun. I think that it has quite a bit of replayability. It plays in about half an hour. Which oh, is nice, nice uh, or less, like depending. It also has special powers for each of the factions. So I was playing the mages the last game, and I got to look at two of Greg's pieces mm-hmm. and make my decisions based on that. Right, and I was playing the elves, so I was able to shoot arrows at Jacob's pieces and reduce their value. So, mm-hmm. you know, just adds another layer of depth, but that's an advanced rule, and it's not necessary. So the first game we played, you know, since it was fresh out the box, yeah, we just played the basic rules, give ourselves a grasp of it. And so there's, you know, 
modularity and elements that you can add or subtract based on how complicated or nuanced a game that you want. Exactly. So definitely a very fun game. Looking forward to getting a few more games of that in later on. For sure. For sure. And I know this past weekend, uh, you also had a chance to play Pandemic Legacy. That I did. It was not our game that we played together. It was the game that I played with my girlfriend. And we got through June, where we failed through June. Womp, womp, womp. Unfortunately. So it was tough. We were literally one card away. If if one card was drawn, we we lost, and if that if one card wasn't drawn, we would have won. Oh wow. It was it was literally at that point, it was whether or not a yellow card was drawn because that we had no more yellow cubes. And if we had to place another yellow cube, we would have lost. The yellow card was drawn, we were gone. So if that card had not been drawn, we would have won immediately because we had every other thing except for the cure of reds, which Jen had in her hand. And it was about to be her turn. That's... So, I mean, that's pandemic, though. It's that, that sort pandemic. of brutal, you know, you either make it or you don't. And if you make it, it's probably going to be by the skin of your teeth. Exactly. And it was exactly like that. And just mm, so close. Uh, it turned out we were playing a few different characters and we had the wrong combinations both times. The first time I was the medic. And the second time I was not the medic, where the first time I shouldn't have been the medic, and the second time I should have been the medic. <laughs> you know, that's another thing. You can the game's gonna morph over time. You can say like, okay, objectively, this is the the better character. It's more likely to be more useful. But then something happens, and you don't draw any coda, and you draw only the regular things. And the medic is like, why wasn't I in this game? Pretty much, because the the funny part is with the yellow, it was the first one we cured. Really? Yes. And it just, you never eradicated it? And we were never able to eradicate oh. it. We were never able to get it off the board. And just more and more and more just kept coming up. There were more, there were outbreaks, there were everything. It was just going through the regular yellow virus. And yep. that was it. I mean, I feel like that's a rite of passage, yeah. though. You know, with Legacy, you, you, you can't not completely lose a month. Yeah. You just, it's something that you got to go through. You get, you know, your battle scars and you come out on the other side and then you win the game mm-hmm. with your head held high. But yeah. And I mean, we've been playing with zero funding. Oh God! For most of the game, okay. Like we've we've only ever had up to two funding. Okay, well then you're fine. You yeah. can afford to lose. You cannot. You don't have to feel bad about losing. Okay, I'm sitting yeah. here thinking like, oh, he's probably hovering around average, like four to six funding. Like, no, whatever, zero. You know, We're dust off the shoulder. Zeros down the board, and then we. This is, I think, only our second and third loss. Okay, well, I feel less bad for you now. Yeah, but. That was my Pandemic Legacy game this weekend. It was still fun. I still enjoy the game. But we were also both working on Polaris. Yes, we were. We mentioned that last week. And, you know, this is an RPG that we're looking to run. Jacob kickstarted it. Very thematic. The setting is just so wonderfully enriched. Um, You know, it's under the sea. There's lots of different 
supernatural elements. You've got, you know, the titular Polaris effect that, mm-hmm. you know, you can, it's almost like magic. You can control sea creatures. That's super cool. You've got extraterrestrials. You've got high tech science. Like it's just a really, really compelling setting. So your tone is a little bit different than last week when we were talking about it. <laughs> that's because I'm focusing on the setting. My feelings regarding the system have not changed terribly much. I do find during the process of character creation that the skill system has just been incredibly unwieldy, incredibly cumbersome. The statistic that I cite, because I counted, because I was in pain, is that there are 83 skills, and of those 83 skills, 19 of them are branching skills, a la, you know, knowledge or craft from Dungeons & Dragons. So you have an incredible number of skills that you have to either memorize or just be able to flip to and all of them are pretty integral to understanding how your character functions because of a concept called limiting skills Mm -hmm. which says you know it doesn't matter how proficient you are at for example using a melee weapon if you are underwater and your underwater maneuverability skill because of course there's a skill Mm -hmm. isn't that high then you only succeed using the much weaker proficiency for underwater maneuvering than you would if you were using like a melee weapon and it's it's just very complicated and interlocking system which i'm sure will be fabulous once i get used to it and once i memorize it because that's what i do but for the process of character creation and for the process of like if i'm coming at this from the perspective of a new player Mm -hmm. this is an incredibly overwhelming system yeah but as you were talking about earlier, the actual flavor of the system and the uh, the setting itself just captures the imagination. Oh, it's phenomenal. It's great. And they've got all these, you know, as you're reading through the history, they've got these little story hooks just dropped in there. You know, it's it can be as simple as one sentence like, oh, yeah, this submarine went missing two years ago. Like, what? what? Tell me more about I want to explore that. That's a campaign. There you go. Exactly. And that's... When I first heard about the system, I didn't even like look up the skills or anything like that. I was just like, "Oh my god, this!" Uh, someone was talking about it on YouTube on like some video, and I was like, "This is awesome!" Like it just the the campaign, the the whole setting itself just captured my imagination, and it was just like immediately, "Boom! I want that. Let's play it. Let's try it." Well, you know, we've got four or five people on board now, so mm-hmm. we'll have to see how that goes. Yep. So look forward to that. And that's a look at what we've been playing and what we've been preparing to play. And now, time to reveal the haunt and our review of Betrayal of the House on the Hill, along with its expansion, Widow's Walk. Uh, Yeah, so Betrayal of the House on the Hill classic game i actually don't know when the original was released um but at least since i've been you know in the the board game scene Mm -hmm. it's been around it's been a known quantity people love it people love playing it they love the stories um and it's really a very simple straightforward game at the core of it you know you're a, a bunch of characters you know whether they're high school students kids mad scientists fortune tellers exploring Mm -hmm. this house and as you go through um you know your 
your power level is going to change, you're going to find some items, and then eventually one of you is going to trigger the haunt and become the betrayer. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's really the, the core, but there's obviously a lot more to that. Yeah. So first let's talk about the characters a little bit. You can be one of, I believe it's... Ten characters? I think there's six different mats, and each mat has two sides, so 12, twelve characters. So you can be one of twelve characters who are going to explore this house. You have different stats. You have your speed, your strength, or might, as they call it, and those are your two physical stats. Then you have your sanity and your knowledge, which are your two mental stats. Basically, the way that it works is you take your characters, you start in the foyer of this house, and you start exploring. You can move up to your speed. So if you have a higher speed, you can move further and explore more. But you stop whenever you reveal a room, which is in a stack that tells you whether it's in the basement, in the um, main floor, the upper floor, or what have you. And when you reveal a room that has an event or an omen, you stop. And you keep going like that until someone triggers the haunt. Right. And so the haunt is going to be basically once you've explored a certain number of tiles that have omens on them, mm-hmm. you're going to have you know accumulated a certain number of omens among the party. Yes. And so each time you acquire a new omen, you're going to take six dice, and the dice are, um, they're not standard D6s. Instead, they've got uh, zeros, ones, and twos. Mm-hmm. And you're just going to roll those six dice, and if the number that you've rolled is less than the number of omens you currently possess, then the haunt starts. Yep. Pretty simple. But along the way, you get to do a lot of different things. So you're in the beginning phase, you're walking around, you're exploring this house, you're creating pretty much the map that you're going to be playing in. Of course, you can also explore later on, but you have different goals. The beginning of the game is all about that exploration. And you're gaining items, you're doing different events that cause and trigger different other things. So when you go into a room that has an event, it could be that you know the walls are bleeding and you have to do a sanity check in order to keep your sanity instead of losing it. And something like that. And the different events, they can cause you to lose or gain different traits depending on what they are. Same with items. You go and you pick up an item like an effigy, and that you know lets you roll an extra die whenever you have to do a skill check that's not an attack or a defense. But if you lose it, you lose like one of each of your traits. So there are those different things. Right, and that's a pretty common theme with the items that you can find. You know, it'll say gain two sanity or one might when you acquire this item, and then if you ever drop this item or if it's stolen from you you lose that amount so you know you're you're gaining those stats temporarily but it's always conditional upon your possession of that item which mm-hmm. you know in the early game when you're just exploring the house there's not a lot of reason to steal items from other people mm-hmm. but you know once the haunt starts maybe the betrayer says you know what i don't really want you to have that spear anymore i'm going to swipe that from you so that you can't stab me exactly and these different items, you keep them on you, and you use them throughout. They can be very helpful with trying to get through the obstacles, get through, getting through the different events and things like that. And the increases and decreases to stats really do matter because if you get to the lowest point on any of your stats, so any of the four of them, you're dead. Now, the interesting part about this is that the scale of each of your stats is different from anyone else. So 
just because you're on the third slot doesn't mean you're at three knowledge, for example. You could be a really smart character who at their beginning point on the third slot is at five versus another character who is, focuses on a different stat and they could be at two or something like that. And then when you go up, you could go from two to two and then to three and then to four and then maybe have another three fours after that to max out versus you know going down you could even have a minimum of three speed as it is but then you take one more speed damage and you're dead right there's a sliding scale but it doesn't necessarily start or end at the same point for for each character or even you know on different sides of the same uh, character token but the way you take damage in the game is interesting as well because it's never taking damage to a specific stat Mm -hmm. whenever you take damage you're going to take either mental or physical damage so say you take two dice of physical damage so you would then roll two of those dice and so you're going to be taking anywhere between zero and four physical damage Mm -hmm. and once you determine the exact number that's going to come from either of your physical stats and you get to choose so in addition to having the the sliding scale that gives you a buffer against death you've got that insurance of okay well my might is naturally pretty low but i've got decently high speed so i can afford to take a couple of physical hits on my speed before i really get into the danger zone which adds a level of survivability that is pretty sorely needed given how punishing the game can be yeah agreed and i really like the way right you can just divide up the damage that you take it really helps and definitely helps keep you alive when you're right at, like, just barely hanging on, that that makes the difference. Oh, yeah. Um, but let's talk about barely hanging on with the haunts. Yes. So the haunts are obviously the selling point of the game. You know, if you're just exploring a house, there's not much of a game there. Yeah. But eventually, you are going to, on a haunt roll, roll lower than the total number of omens that you've accumulated. And at that point, you're going to go consult the book, the survival guide. Mm-hmm. And that's actually going to have this matrix that tells you, okay... What omen did you pull, and what room did you pull it from? And that's going to give you a reference number, which then refers to a haunt. Mm -hmm. So I think in the base game, there's something like 100 haunts. 60. 60? Oh, always felt like more. And then the expansion adds a whole bunch more because obviously it adds new rooms to choose from and new omens that you can possibly have. So the chances of you getting the same haunt multiple times are always going to be very slim which means very high replayability and it's always something fun to discover which mm-hmm. is great yeah so the betray so the haunt is going to start and then the betrayer whoever that turns out to be if there is anyone right there may not always be a betrayer but it can be anyone from the player that has the highest knowledge or whoever triggered the haunt you know the those conditions are going to change but whoever that is is going to take their book they're going to go off into their corner read whatever their rules are the remaining survivors are going to read their rules and then when everybody's ready they're going to reconvene and now the game has changed Mm -hmm. it's not just about exploring the house now each of the survivors is going to have a very definitive goal and the betrayer is also going to have a definitive goal that's trying to prevent them either from escaping or from stopping them, you know, and it's it's just very fluid in that sense. Agreed. The game really feels like you take every single B-movie trope 
and you put it into this game. You have everything from zombies to Frankenstein to like, demons and like, clowns even. Like, you've got everything that you can think of that is in any B-movie horror, except for maybe Thanksgiving, because I don't think that they managed to put a killer turkey in there. I wouldn't be surprised, though. We have not seen all the haunts yet, so that, it is possible. So... All of these different kinds of tropes, everything like that, those are going to be the things that the haunts bring up. So you could be fighting a ghost, you could be trying to stop the person who betrayed you from summoning a demon into the house. And they all have really fun flavor text in the actual books. So, you know, why you're doing this, it gives you like this little bit of atmosphere that usually someone tries to read out in a creepyish voice, which is always a lot of fun. And then you also have, of course, wind text for either the betrayer or the survivors. And so it's just a very, very good flavorful game. I think that it has a lot of really interesting scenarios. Each one is different, and each one also introduces some kind of different mechanic or different need or goal, Mm -hmm, which is really good, I think, because most of the game is actually pretty simple, but this gives you that extra bit of, now I'm going to have to do something different in order to get to this or to change this, and now there's these other rules and these other things coming up. Right, yeah, the core mechanics of exploration and then once the haunt starts attacking are really very basic and then the haunt is just going to flesh those out in ways that are both unique and enjoyable. Exactly. But no game is perfect. That's right, and there's definitely a lot about Betrayal at the House on the Hill, even as strong a game as it is, that could be better. We both agree that the rules clarifications that come along with the haunts could be stronger you know the base game those core mechanics like we talked about are very simple but when you split up the haunt into okay this is what the betrayer does and this is what the survivors do you've got two sets of rules that are sometimes talking past each other almost so i actually distinctly remember one scenario where the betrayer had a victory condition and the survivors had a victory condition, and those two things weren't mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if they counted on that just being an extreme corner case, but we ended up experiencing that scenario, and we were like, we have no idea who wins, because this says that the survivors win, this says that the betrayer wins, and there's nothing about a tiebreaker or what happens if both of these conditions are met. So I think just clarifying those rules and kind of buffing up that language would go a long way towards solving those problems when they do occur. Yeah, exactly. And it's just a few clarifications here and there. I had a time when I was a betrayer that I wasn't sure if I had like unlimited numbers of certain components or a very limited number of certain components and it just didn't clarify. And even if I like read through the rules like three or four times, I wasn't sure whether or not I was playing it right and whether or not I was cheating my way or like not doing something that I should have been doing. So I really think that that is one of the weaker points. That being said, there are at the moment somewhere around a hundred different haunts. So Trying to get them all perfect is difficult, but I think that it really would help the game with a little bit more attention to those details. Absolutely. And, you know, it's not something that we don't understand why it happened. Like, I can't even imagine the sheer amount of work that went into producing these haunts. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's just one of those things that, as players, we experience these, and then we're kind of like, oh, huh, you know, they could change that. And, you know, 
games are coming out with multiple editions now. Maybe if they release a new edition, they'll take that feedback and they'll incorporate it. So I, I, I definitely have high hopes for yeah. the creators. The second thing that really bugs me a bit is some of the components. So the cards for the characters are little cardboard pentagrams, and they're cool. I mean, it makes sense to have it as a five-sided shape because you have a one of the different skills on each side. So you have four sides taken up by that and then the bottom. So makes sense, really cool. But then how you're supposed to keep track of the skills on the slider is using these little cheap plastic things that do not stay on. So it's just like one person knocks into the table just a tiny bit and you don't know whether you are on the four or five level. You, your whole character is just messed up. And I've gotten to the point where I just don't play with those cards anymore. I just have that in front of me to know where my base is, but use an app on my phone in order to actually use that versus using the components that they give me. Right. And I think one of the things that really speaks to that problem is that, you know, this isn't an app that you've created yourself. And in fact, it's not the only one. Yeah. Like I know for a fact that there are multiple different apps for tracking stats for characters at Betrayal on the House on the Hill, mm -hmm. which means that there are lots of people out there who are experiencing this problem and who are experiencing it to such a degree that they're motivated to actually create something that intense to solve it. Exactly. So those components are really frustrating. And then there are so many tiny little pieces in the game. So this is one of those games that I think came with like three or four punch boards. And all of them had like little tiny pieces in them that you're like punching out. Circles for some monsters, these little teardrop shapes for others. And those are color coded so it's not as bad. But then you have these little black triangles, diamonds, hexagons, and other shapes that all have writing on them. And they all look like each other. So it's just like strength check written in like a little white font on this black triangle that you're trying to dig through all these components just to find that one. And that's the other thing that is just really frustrating because it does take a long time to actually find the components that you need when you're playing the game. And that can really break immersion, which is something that you don't want to do in Betrayal of the House on the Hill. Because right. this game is about immersion. Right, it's absolutely so atmospheric that if you have to take the time to root through, you know, two or three dozen cardboard pieces looking for, oh, where's the secret passage? Okay, I found that. Where's the other secret passage to go on the other side? Mm -hmm. It really just kind of slows down the pace of the game. And it's something that's, that's really unfortunate. But again... We understand why it happens, given that there are so many different scenarios, and they're going to involve so many different types of specific pieces. It's yeah. just one of those things that we wish could be better. Exactly. That being said, what do you think your final verdict for the game is? I think my final verdict for this game is going to be a play it. Like we said, wonderfully atmospheric, almost infinite replayability, but just the level of commitment that it takes you know a lot of the haunts aren't short um, and a lot of them are frustrating in certain ways you know it's not something that you're going to want to play if you're not willing to be mad at your opponent which could be said about a lot of different games but i think for me it's just not something that i would say is integral to having in my board game cabinet well, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit there because I'm going to say buy it on this game because Betrayal of the House on the Hill, I think, is the Halloween game. 
at the moment, I don't think there is a better, more accessible game to play if you want to play some sort of a atmospheric Halloween game. That's true. I'll give you that. And I really enjoy the way that it works, the exploration, and the fact that you will never play the same game twice. It's Even if you get the same haunt, even if you get anything like that, you will be at different characters, different levels, different rooms. The house looks different. The basement looks different. Someone is stuck in the basement. Someone is in the attic now. You know, there's just so many different things that can happen that you're never playing the same game and it never feels the same. And... You even mentioned that in the rules, it says that if you'd played this haunt before and you don't want to play it again, just pick a different one. Because that is how, you know, how good the the game's, game is. You could just, like, go ahead and say, all right, I'm going to go use this one instead. And because of that, I think that this is really a game that you should have in your game collection. It's definitely a buy it from me. All right, well, there we go. Before we wrap up, let's do a few recommendations Betrayal at the House on the Hill is a really great game if you liked Dead of Winter. It's that same sort of semi-cooperative but with semi-betrayal elements and Mm -hmm. has a lot of the same themes in terms of that sort of atmospheric, oppressive, classic horror feel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, where Dead of Winter is just focused on zombies, Betrayal has all the different ones and is a little bit of a lighter game, a little bit of a faster game, honestly, than Dead of Winter. It certainly is. But another one that I will mention is Descent, and that's Descent 2nd Edition, and that's also got a very similar 1v-all kind of feel to it, so just like Betrayal is a lot of times after the haunt, you have one person controlling the monsters, the enemies, or something like that, and then you have the heroes who are trying to get to a certain goal or do a certain action in order to win. And you've got the same spatial, like, moving around aspect and people chasing each other around. So if you like that part of Descent, totally recommend Betrayal. All right. And last but not least, the Dungeons & Dragons board game Castle Ravenloft has a lot of the same tile-based explorations and a lot of the same evolving strategies and a lot of the same evolving scenarios. Uh, The difference there is that they're known ahead of time, but it's the same feel of, okay, we're going to go down into this dungeon slash house and we're not necessarily going to know what we're encountering we're going to deal with it as it comes along and we're going to hope to finish up with the objective once it gets revealed yep and just one final note for widow's walk put a pencil and a small notepad into the box yes absolutely it will help a lot when and you don't have to scramble to look for some pieces of paper to rip up in order to do a lot of the haunts which are new and added in widow's walk But that is our review of Betrayal at the House on the Hill. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you join us next time. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Dragon's Demise. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel for the video version of this podcast, as well as other videos coming soon. We hope you join us next time for our review of Splendor.